we're in the, the gospel, uh, or sorry, the, the Paul's letter to the Galatians right now. We just started it last week uh, here at Grace Valley Church. And uh, we, I said last week that Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians to combat heresy, right? To, to deal with false doctrine, false teaching, false understanding of the story and the message of Jesus Christ. And these churches were in big, 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 big trouble because if they were to listen to this false teaching, they were at risk of making this gospel ineffective in their lives. It, the guys who were, who were coming to Galatia and preaching a bit of a different message were, than the Apostle Paul were not just preaching a bit of a different message, they were actually changing the gospel content and the core of the gospel itself. And that's why uh, the Apostle Paul freaks right out. This wasn't just sort of error. You know, you can have what you would call error. So, for example, you have uh, some Christians uh, can believe in uh, erroneous teachings, and that's why we have different uh, traditions and streams of the Christian faith, right? You have Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy, and you have Protestantism, which has a whole bunch of different traditions of its own, uh, obviously. And really, it's because we make errors. None of us has the exact right, pure teaching of the Bible on every single issue, we have our interpretation of it, which causes us to develop our traditions. And those, what we could call errors, are, are second-order type errors. They're, they're things where, if you believe them, you're not compromising the, the actual core of the gospel, you're just misunderstanding one aspect of the Bible's teaching. And so, as important as those differences can be, they're not like this. This is serious. This is, you are changing the gospel into something else. You're turning the gospel message into poison, frankly. Like, if you take, you take a glass of orange juice and you put a couple of drops of arsenic in that glass of orange juice, you can't say, well, you know, I know there's poison in the orange juice, but if I take a straw and I just sort of stick it in there and I just drink from the bottom of the glass, then I'll be okay and I'll still be fine. No, you've turned that glass of orange juice into a poison. And that's what the Apostle Paul was dealing with here. So the stakes are incredibly high in his letter to, uh, to the Galatians. Now, one of the tactics that Paul's opponents was using was this. They would say, they came to Galatia and they went to these churches and said, so, you, uh, you talked to Paul, did you? The Apostle Paul? Yeah, yeah, we talked to him and he told us the gospel. And they'd go, they'd say, Paul. Paul. Who's Paul? Who is this guy? How can you trust this guy? How do you know that this guy's authority is, is worthy of uh, submitting to? Do you know what this guy was like? Do you know who the Apostle Paul actually was? If you knew what this guy was actually like and what he used to do, there's no way you would trust his message. You couldn't believe it. And see, what that's called in logic, it's called an ad hominem fallacy, which means you attack the character of the message 
uh, rather, sorry, the character of the messenger rather than the message itself. And you're supposed to notice that and say, well, obviously I can't trust what this guy says, or, or you can't, that's not a fair argument to just say because the messenger is sort of untrustworthy, the message itself must be untrustworthy. It's, it's supposed to be considered a, a failure of proper logic. Okay? Now, here's the thing, though. <laughs> We do it all the time, right? Boy, I kind of giggled funny there, sorry. I'm not crazy, I promise. Uh, but it strikes me, we do that all the time, right? Because we don't like where the message is coming from, we don't like the message itself. And interestingly enough, the Apostle Paul says, huh, so you want to attack me and you want to talk about me and say because of who I was, my message isn't worth listening to and you can't trust my message? Fine. Let's do it. Let's go there. Let's talk about me. Because his argument is the exact opposite. His argument is that his life is actually evidence for the truth of the gospel. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at this autobiography that Paul kind of lays out for us in these verses. And we're going to see two things Basically, basically two things, lots of subpoints in and there, but really it boils down to this. How did the Apostle Paul experience the message of the gospel himself? And then, excuse me, how did the Apostle Paul actually accept the gospel message? How did he experience or receive it, sorry? How did he receive it? And then how did he accept it? First of all, how did Paul receive this message? Paul argues that he received this message directly from God, directly from Jesus Christ. Now, up in verse 1, we looked at that last week, Paul argues that he was sent by God, not by man. That he was sent by God, not by people. And now he says that the message he got and the message he was sent with is also from God and not from people. So he says in verse 12, he says this, I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, immediately, if you're a skeptic, you say, well, you know, every founder of a religion says that, don't they? My religion is actually divine revelation. And the, the reality is, actually, no, not every uh, founder of a religion says that. But certainly, uh, one of the apostles of the Christian faith does say that. But here's what I want you to notice. I'm not going to talk about that part of it right now. What I want you to notice is this. Think of, if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, you know that he had heard the gospel before. Before Jesus came to him on the Damascus road and blasted him with the bright light and then off to Arabia, he went for his own personal tutorial. We're not exactly sure what happened to him in Arabia, but that's sort of what we think happened to him. Before any of that happened, Paul had heard the gospel before. At the very least, we know he heard it in Acts chapter 7, because there, Stephen, a disciple of Jesus and a deacon in the church, he had preached this profound sermon showing how Jesus is the Messiah of the Old Testament, all that kind of stuff. And then we read that people who didn't like it, they stoned Stephen, and then they took his clothes and they laid it at whose feet? Paul's. So Paul was there, nodding approval to them killing this guy for the message that he heard. In other words, in a sense, in a way, the Apostle Paul knew the gospel already, and yet he didn't. He didn't receive it 
You notice that's the word he uses, the, 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 that he received this gospel? He, didn't, he hadn't accepted it yet. He hadn't understood it yet until he got it straight from Jesus. Now, why? Having heard it before, why was this the time that he finally understood it? And, and we've talked about this before. Scripture says that nobody understands the gospel until God enables them to understand the gospel. Scripture says that every single human being will reject this message that God came into the world in the person of Jesus Christ, He lived the life you should have lived and died the death you should have died and rose again. If you hear that and the Holy Spirit is not doing something in you to enable you to believe it, you will hear that and you will go, cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. Or, that's incredibly offensive. Or, good for you. Enjoy being a Christian. I'm going to go play golf. You won't care. Why do we reject it? Why do we reject it? Why is this a message that is so very difficult for us to understand? Well, think this through. The gospel is this. You are saved from your sin, and of course there's lots of people who don't even believe they need to be saved from sin, but that's a subject for another message right now. The gospel is this. You are saved from your sin and from judgment completely because of grace, meaning there is absolutely nothing you can do to earn God's favor. It is absolutely impossible for any human being, no matter how good they are, to achieve this gift of being free from sin and death and hell from God. You say, so what? Every time you look at the cross, Every time the cross is given to you, and I've had this happen when I've done some of my interviews with non-Christians, they've seen this, maybe even better than Christians, frankly, if that's possible. They've seen this. When you look at the cross, what does the cross tell you? The first thing it tells you is, you are a wicked, wicked sinner who was only savable by virtue of the death of God himself. That's what you're told. That's what the cross tells you. It's an offense. It's something that ticks you off. If you really, really think about it, it's, it, you know at Christmas, you get gifts, right? And imagine if you're opening your presents from under the tree at Christmas, and you open your presents, and you, the first one is a bottle of mouthwash. And the second present you open is a bottle of Rogaine. And the third gift you open is a, a workout DVD. These are all gifts that you have been given by someone who loves you, who has just told you your breath stinks, you're balding, and you're overweight. See, some gifts are offenses at the same time as being a gift, right? And that's precisely the case with the gospel. The gospel is an insult to us. Yes, it does tell you that you are loved and cherished by God, that He was actually willing to go to a cross and die for you, despite knowing everything about you, but it first tells you, you need to come into contact and deal with the fact that you are a sinner worthy of God's judgment, and that is not something we want to hear. That's why He's got to open our eyes. That's why Jesus had to directly, it's kind of ironic, eh? Jesus had to directly open Paul's eyes by blinding him. Chew on that one for a little while. So, I said, though, 
that this is evidence of the divine origin of Paul's message, that he didn't just make up this message of the gospel, but it actually came to him from the true God himself. Why is that? Well, if you wanted to start a movement, you wanted to change the world, and you had a message to bring to the world that you wanted people to buy in and say, yes, I give my life to that message, and I'm going to live out of that message, I'm going to conform my life to that story, would you start by telling people, oh, by the way, what you need to know and you don't know about yourself yet is this, you are a wicked, wicked sinner under the judgment of a just God who deserves to be cast out of his presence for eternity. Is that the message you want to sell? Is that how you want to start a movement? Anybody, you take that to any ad company and they'll say, this is pretty tough to market, okay? Instead, wouldn't it be better to sort of affirm people? Like say, look, you're basically okay, but you're just not quite there. What you need, maybe a little more enlightenment. What you need is maybe a little more understanding. What you need is maybe a little more teaching What you need is maybe a little more solitude, a little more meditation. I don't know, maybe what you need is a little more brand. But you're basically there. All you need, you just need something to kind of get yourself over the hump. You see, no other religion in the world, no other system of thought in all of history comes to the human race and says, you know what the problem with us is? Us. Every other way of looking at the world's problem says that, especially in the religions, it's, the issue is ignorance, you know, or, or the issue is our passions. We've got to learn to control our passions or properly channel our passions, or, or the issue is evolution, and we just have not, we've not risen up the ladder as far as we ought to go. Christianity is the only one because, that says the problem with us is us, and here's why. Paul's argument is this, because it's divine revelation. You couldn't make this, a human being wouldn't make this up. A human being wouldn't say, this is the way that I'm going to convince the world to follow me. You all really suck. Doesn't make sense. Now, here's what this means. If you're, this morning, if you're here, you are a Christian. Take great comfort in this, okay? This means that no vision no experience of an angelic voice or person in front of you, no experience of the overwhelming love of God flooding your heart or however you want to describe it, none of that is the actual basis of your faith. You see, people will sometimes argue, look, I know that Christianity is true because I feel it. I just know it in my heart. And it's okay to know it in your heart. And actually, it's what you, one of the things that God blesses you with is, is the experience of His presence and the knowledge of the truthfulness of what you believe. Deep down in, your, in your, your, your heart, not just your head, not just I know these things are true, but I feel it, I can experience, it's existential for me. But the reason that you believe it and the reason you can hold on to it is not because you feel it, but because it is objectively true. Not because you're sincere about it. 
See, if you've been a, a follower of Jesus for any kind of length of time, you know there are times where you feel very, very close to God. You feel very much in tune with Him. You, you, you are relishing your prayer time and your devotional time and, and you experience His presence in, in really great ways. But you also know that there are times where it feels like you are all alone in the desert. God isn't there. You're still praying, maybe. You're still reading your scripture. You're still going to church. You're still singing the songs. But it's just like, like you feel numb or you almost even feel a little bit antagonistic to God. Like, yeah, I'm here and I'm singing to you, but I got to admit, I kind of you know, got a problem with you right now. And what happens, if you're a sensitive Christian especially, what happens is you start going, wait a minute, like, what's going on with my faith here? I need to do some introspection, and that's not such a bad thing. I need to question myself. And you start to wonder if it's all been a sham or something, or if you haven't really believed, or if you haven't really been sincere, and you, and you wonder if you're saved at all in the first place. What Paul, what Paul is showing us here this morning is that we need to be reminded, and it's so wonderful to be reminded, that our faith is not dependent upon how we're feeling about it. Our faith is dependent upon the object of our faith, Jesus, and his message, which is real because it's, it's outside of us. Let me, let me try to explain this this way. Imagine if you're falling off a cliff. You trip. I've, I've used this one before because I think this is really good. You've tripped and you're about to fall off a cliff. And as you're going down, you see a root sticking out of the, out of the side of the cliff. And you're hurtling towards the earth and you're going to go splat. And you look at that, and as you're coming upon this, this uh, root, you say, wow, that's a big, fat, strong root. It looks like it comes from an oak tree, because you're an arborist. And uh, I, I know that this thing can probably hold 280 pounds of, of, uh, per square inch of pressure, and I'm falling only at the rate which will cause 212 pounds of pressure. And therefore, I have all this evidence that, that this root will probably hold me, because you're also an engineer. You're an engineer arborist. And uh, you, you know all this stuff. And as you're thinking this through, you whip past it. And you had all these feelings of, of hope and trust and sincerity about the ability of this root to save you from your impending death, but you didn't reach out and grab it. But there's someone else who... You know, they, they have not put a guard up by this cliff, and they should have because here's another person who tripped, and they're falling too. And they go, look at that spindly little root. I know nothing about roots. I can't imagine that this thing's going to help me. I'm a dead man. I'm certain of it. But you reach out and you grab the root anyway. And hallelujah, you've been saved. Who would you rather be? See, it's the root that's saved, not how the person felt about the root. I once heard Tim Keller put it this way in such a funny, funny way that i got to share it with you. He once said, you know, there's people walking through the, the, Red, the Red Sea when the Red Sea parted, right? And the Israelites are walking through the Red Sea. He said probably some of them were walking through going, our God is the greatest God. Look what he can do. Take that Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And they're like so confident. And there were other people walking through going, oh, we're going to die, we're going to die, we're going to die. And everybody walks through. If you're feeling distant, look at the object of your faith. Look at Jesus. Preach to yourself Him. 
Don't preach to yourself, you. As Robert Murray McShane used to say, for every one look at your sin, take ten looks at Jesus. Okay, you're saved by the objective truth of the gospel. That's the first thing, okay? Your Christianity is not based on your status. It's not based on how well you practice your faith. That, isn't that liberating? It doesn't depend on how good you are at being a Christian. That should be incredibly liberating. Some people feel a lot of pressure to be a good Christian. It's not dependent upon that. Okay, but at the same time, interestingly enough, Paul is arguing that a changed life is nevertheless proof of the truth of the gospel. And this is the second point, how Paul accepted the gospel. And Paul says, my life is evidence that the gospel is true. What many of us don't understand, probably, is that the Apostle Paul is likely one of the most unlikely converts to Christianity, maybe in all of history. He explains this himself in verses 13 and 14. He says, You have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Okay, here's what Paul is saying. You heard, yeah, I was, I was a hardcore Jew. I was a varsity Jew. I lettered in Judaism, okay? And then I went to grad school. In Judaism, and I am currently working on. I was currently working on my doctorate in Judaism, and I practiced the. I didn't just practice Judaism. I practiced the serious form of Judaism. See, he's talking about the traditions of his elders, and scholars think that he's referring to something called the halakha or the halakha, and these were oral interpretations of the Old Testament laws. So you had the Old Testament laws themselves, and then you had all these, these interpretations of these Old Testament laws, like how do I, okay, thou shalt not murder. Well, what does that mean? That means I should not do this, and I should not do that, and I should not do that, and I should not do that, and goes on and on and on and on. And so they had these oral histories of ways of interpreting the Old Testament. And the Apostle Paul said, I didn't just follow the law itself, I followed those uh, interpretations of the law as well. I wasn't like regular Jews. You got to understand, like when you read the Bible, you probably think, oh man, those Jews, they're like so serious about the religious, their religion, and, and we weren't. Well, there were lots of what you could call nominal Jews in the first centuries. Yeah, I'm a Jew. I'm in, Jude I'm, I'm in Judea. I live here. So I'm a Jew. That's what we are. Ethnically, culturally, we're Jews. And so there are practices that I practice, and, but I don't, you know, I don't necessarily think really hard about all this kind of stuff. And the Apostle Paul says, I wasn't like that. You want more evidence that I wasn't like that? I was a Christian killer. I got letters that allowed me to go into cities to find Jews that had converted to Christianity, and I put them in jail, I persecuted them, I even tried to kill them. What we would say about the Apostle Paul today is that he was an extremist. He was like, he was like ISIS, okay? See, the Apostle Paul was being told, or the people were being told, you know, the Apostle Paul, he just made up this story about being saved by grace and you don't have to follow any of the Old Testament laws and stuff. And Paul says, are you kidding me? Do you have any idea who I was? I was like the super Jew. I was a hardcore Jew. Yes, I was culturally Jewish. And if you go to Philippians, he talks about that. He says, I don't even, it's not just that, I know that I'm a Jew. I know which tribe of Judaism I come from. Lots of Jews didn't by the time of Paul. 
But he said, I'm, a, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. I know that. But he was also a Jew by choice, you see. He, he had dedicated himself to his religion. He chose to be an extremist. See, people often say that the Apostle Paul and all religious people, they're a product of their culture. They're a product of the times in which they live. So yeah, of course he was Jew. He lived back then and you had to. No wonder, right? And it is true that all of us are products of our culture. No question about that. But Paul is actually saying that that's evidence of the truth of the gospel because how on earth could a message like the one I have been teaching break a person like me who is so deeply steeped in my culture? Have you ever noticed that most, most of the world's religions have sort of ethnic geographical roots to them and bases to them. So if you take a map of the world, a religious map of the world, you'll see that Hinduism is very largely a Southeast Asian religion. Islam and Judaism are largely very much a Middle Eastern religion. Buddhism is very much largely a Eastern religion. So they're, they're sort of ethnically and geographically located. But if you look at Christianity, it's fascinating. Christianity is dotted all over the world. The Christian faith, it started in Palestine, right? But then it migrated to Greece. And then from there, it kind of went to Italy. And then it went to all over Europe. And then it hopped over to the Atlantic and it kind of established itself in North America. And then it, from there also, it kind of went down into South Af uh, America and, and Africa. And now, there are more Christians in China on any given Sunday, worshiping God, the God of Christianity, than there are in Europe and, and North America combined. See, Western people, will, we would like to say, look, if you grew up in Israel, if you were born and raised in Israel, of course you'd be a Jew. And if you were born and raised in Saudi Arabia, of course you'd be a Muslim. Because religions are simply cultural products. You see, they're, they're produced by the culture. It's all just relative, frankly. So, born in Saudi Arabia, of course you're a Muslim. Born in North America, probably a secularist. Born in Europe, depending on your family, you're either sort of a Christian tradition or you're a, a, a secular person. But wait a minute. If your religious views are products of the culture in which you were born and raised, then isn't the relativistic view about culture and religion that comes from Western nations culturally determined too? What I'm saying is, you can say, yes, you'd be a Muslim if you were born in Saudi Arabia, but I can turn around and say, well, yeah, you'd be a relativist if you were born in Canada. The question is, which one is right? See, the Apostle Paul is saying, look, I was born a hardcore Jew in a hardcore Jewish culture, yes, but, 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 look at verse 15 and 16, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, etc., 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 let me cut to the chase. 
Paul says this, I was the persecutor, and then I became the proclaimer. He did a complete 180-degree turn. Now, he's the apostles, apostle to the Gentiles. Do you understand that he, he was raised and he dedicated his life to keeping his distance from those filthy pagans? He probably didn't know any Gentiles. Gentiles we're Gentiles, okay, Just in case you're wondering. We're descendants of the Gentiles. We're not Jewish, ethnically Jewish. We're ethnically whatever. And we weren't raised Jewish. Paul probably didn't even know any of them. He probably had no clue. How do I evangelize to these people called the, the Gentiles? He had spent his life keeping his distance from them. He was part of the group of Jews who said, don't even eat something, even if it's kosher, don't even eat something that was sold by a pagan in the marketplace. Even if it wasn't sold to you. If a pagan sold it to a Jew and that Jew tries to sell it to you, unclean, don't touch it. That's what he came from. And now he's chasing them. Now he can't spend enough time with them. Everything he once believed, he tosses out. He, 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 he leaves his, his culture behind. He leaves his traditions behind. He leaves much of the theology behind, at least the part that didn't conform to what the Old Testament was actually saying about the coming of Jesus. And the people he despised, he began to pursue. And as I was reading this, I thought sometimes, I, 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 I must admit, it, it just struck me. Sometimes we Christians, we do the opposite. Paul encounters Jesus and he starts seeking out people who aren't like him. And sometimes Christians got to admit that what we do is when we become a Christian, the first thing we think we ought to do is we ought to isolate ourselves. And we retreat to our Christian enclaves. Yeah, we've got to work. I mean, you can't avoid working with non-Christians or doing business with non-Christians, but that's about it. And I, I have to admit, I get that, okay? And I've been really wrestling with that this week. If you read my dispatches from Dundas thing, like that's kind of what that's all about. The fact of the matter is, is we like being with people who are like us. Same ethnic history. You know, what part of the old country does your family come from? We li like, that's not such a bad thing to like. We like being a pe around people who think like us. It's fun to be agreed with, isn't it? It's affirming. You know, Jesus spent so much time with people who are very much unlike him. He was friends with people, not just business associates with people who are very much unlike him. He spent a lot of time with them on, his, on their turf, you know, in their homes, in meeting places, out in the public square, so much so that he was actually charged with not being a, a real rabbi, you know. He said himself, he said, the son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. The Christian impulse should be a missionary impulse. I'm not saying that we just, you know, I'm not telling you, you know, you should be hanging out in the bar every night because that's where other people are. But we shouldn't be isolating ourselves from, from, from non-Christians as well. We should integrate, not assimilate. You understand? Now, conclusion, okay. Man, what a morning. What's our takeaway? What do we, what do, we do with all this? I'm going to talk to two different types of people that may or may not be here this morning. I don't know your story. 
So if it applies to you, great. If it doesn't, wait. Hopefully the next one will. First of all, if you're not a Christian and you're here, if you say, you know, I'm, I'm just not the Christian type. I'm not the believing type. I'm not the faith type. I'm, I've been raised to be a scientific thinker, not a faith thinker. Would you please consider, based upon what you've heard this morning, that, that Christians are not types of people. You can't actually nail down the profile of a Christian. People sometimes say, well, you know, I, I, Christians, you know, they're probably kind of weak intellectually, so they need this intellectual tr- crutch to deal with the things that they don't understand, or they're, they're caught in their culture, you know, they were raised in sort of this religious tradition and they're stuck in it, or, or they're needy. They just don't know how to get through life, and so they need something to help them get through life. Here's the Apostle Paul. Nobody, and I mean nobody, it doesn't matter how much you hate Christianity, nobody charges the Apostle Paul with being intellectually weak. Scholars agree, religious and unreligious, they agree this guy was brilliant. A brilliant philosopher, yes, a brilliant theologian, and he had a tremendous impact on history. I've tried to show you that, that Paul wasn't just caught by his cultural moment, because if he was, he never would have converted in the first place. And Paul was not needy. Okay? Notice that what he says, it, 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 he says it in verse uh, 15. Uh, oh, no, sorry, yeah, verse 14, he says, I was advancing in Judaism. You've got to understand, Paul was, he had a career trajectory that was taking him to the top. He had a good life by those standards. And yet, and yet he was confronted with what he, he, he could not escape the objective truth of what he was facing. And, and you know, history has borne that out many, many times, right? There's a quote on the front of your bulletin. And not the first quote, but the second quote. It's by a guy named A.N. Wilson. A.N. Wilson was a philosopher, a British philosopher of the 20th century, a very brilliant philosopher. He was sort of the, he was kind of a mentor to guys like Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins, names you may have heard of before. And near the end of his life, he converted to Christianity. And listen to what he says. He says, the gospel would still be true even if no one believed it. The hopeful thing is that where it is tried, where it is imperfectly, and hesitantly followed, as it was in Northern Ireland and South Africa during the peace processes, as it is in many a Salvation Army hostel this Christmas, as it flickers, and I love why that he uses the word flickers, like he doesn't say it shines brightly because Christians aren't always very good at shining. He says it flickers in countless unseen Christian lives, it works. And its palpable and remarkable power to transform human life takes us to the position of believing that something very wonderful indeed began with the birth of Christ into the world. He's not the only one. Uh, Some of you may have heard of Brian Stewart. Brian Stewart was the senior correspondent to the CBC for many, many years. Brian Stewart converted to Christianity. Many people don't know that. He's a believer. And his argument for why he ultimately converted to Christianity was because he spent decades going to war-torn countries all over the world to report on all the agony and awful stuff that he saw. And he said, 
everywhere I went, the first people who were there trying to put things back together were Christians. And eventually, he said, I just, I, I, I had to believe that it was their faith and their worldview that was causing them to run to trouble rather than run away from it. If you're a Christian, here's the question for you. Is anyone praising God because of you? That's what the Apostle Paul says at the very end in verse 24. He says, and they glorified God because of you, or because of me. Paul's point has always been, my, my life is evidence of the truth of the gospel. Paul's changed life does not make the gospel true, and neither would yours or mine. But people saw in him something that made them thankful, that made them praise God. Maybe they didn't even know it was God they were praising. There was a strength of character. There, there was a compassion. There's a generosity. There's a kindness. I don't know exactly the combination. But are people praising, you beca- praising God because of you? And maybe if they're not, it might just be because they don't know. That might be the only reason why. I don't really know where else to go with that. So I just throw it, you know, it's like, boom, amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for bringing us here to hear what you have to tell us. Take what is good and apply it to our hearts. Throw the rest out, we ask. And may we be people that reflect Jesus to the world. In his name we pray, amen. Uh, Normally we have a time after.